Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Yeah, hi. Uh, hi, I have a question in terms of, you know, when food is ready and do you want, should I not interrupt you or? I think you can let us know and then we'll just. Well, it'd be it. a real touch in the interview. It's like, oh, we're going to stop and eat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 we'll be back yeah. in a couple minutes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah okay. Okay. Yeah, 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 totally. Thank you. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, that's the kind of the charm of the podcast sometimes. Here in El Cerrito, home of Robert. Robert Horton. Robert Horton. And Janet Carter. Janet Carter. And that's funny because you also do a lot of stuff with Tom Carter. Yes, although there's no uh, relationship. There's actually different, two different strands of Carter family. One's from Virginia and one's from Quakers in uh, Pennsylvania. Which one is... Uh, Janet's Quakers in Pennsylvania, and Tom okay. is uh, Virginia. And that's like, like the same as the Carter family, like the music side. That's all the Virginia. That's all Probably. Appalachian. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and we are. I'm now delivering you this record that I put out on my label. That's a collaboration between Robert and Neil Campbell, and it's called Trojan Dropper. Do you wanna? Tell the people a little bit about what went into the making on the music side of this. I, I, I don't really want to get into the making on the physical side of it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this has been a long time in the works, right? Yeah, well, it started as a conversation on a mailing list between Neil and I. Um, and interestingly enough, he professed an interest... This was actually a free folk mailing list, but he professed an interest in dance music, which I also shared. Uh, and we talked about making, quote unquote, a disco album, uh, which Trojan Dropper isn't. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but, you know, there's some definite funk and dance elements in Trojan Dropper um, and some very, very buried samples um, and some four on the floor stuff. Uh, and so, you know, for a while we just talked about what dance music we liked. Mm-hmm. Um, like, for example? <laughs> well, I was more really pressing for the 1970s disco, because uh, I feel like no one has done a real, like, cut-up job, you know, like really like, you know, going in there with a cut and paste and looping and really gone wild with what you could do with disco music. Mm-hmm. So that's still an aspiration for the future, perhaps with Neil. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went back and took 
some old recordings of mine from the 80s when I was really heavily into funk mm -hmm. uh, and some live stuff with uh, actually the last time I played with the bass player from the appliances I think she's buried somewhere on this record uh, it's hard to say because I sent those recordings to Neil and they came back like like he put them through some sort of uh, alchemical uh, blender um, you could hear the same rhythms but it was like all like distorted and weird and mm -hmm. then I started laying layering stuff on that and then he sent me some beats plus I sampled some beats off of other records of his <laughs> I mean, it, it was very, like, all-consuming. I, I could not trace. I didn't keep notes. Mm -hmm. And it took two... You know, I'd come back and listen to something, and it would just be labeled Neil and Robert, and I'd go, I have no idea who did <laughs> what on this. Um, and then I also recorded uh, here, like, I would get something from Neil, and I'd say, oh, that would sound great with, uh, like, a terror... Because, you know, I know Neil has a total love of Terry Riley mm -hmm. so I got a sax player I know Dan Plonzi and said bring your soprano and play just like Terry Riley and we'll put you through a delay <laughs> uh, and we did that and that came out wonderful on top of the dance uh, beat yeah, yeah the sax track yeah I know you're talking about um, so the way you exchanged files uh, was it just uh, uploading stuff, or was it actually uh, sending CDRs? Towards, towards the end, it was uploading, but at the beginning, it was snail mail mm -hmm. with cryptic notes. <laughs> <laughs> just like here's some tracks, do what you will to them, yeah. and then you just get something back in the mail, kind of chain letter back and forth like a game of telephone or something. Oh, and then we'd give each other feedback on 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 the stuff and. Um, and we, you know, we had hit a couple spots where one or the other of us would get busy in our life and we wouldn't do anything for a while. And then I got real inspired, I think it was about a year ago, and just went to work on it and sent it back to Neil with all of the overdubs, the fiddle and the mm -hmm. saxophones and the strings, sort of synthesized strings on one track. Mm -hmm. And Neil was like, Oh my God! If you're going to use real instruments on this, you've just taken this up a whole other level. Because <laughs> oh, it's all samples at first. Sam yeah. Samples, and then it's through whatever weird software he was using, and I I have some pretty strange software. Mm -hmm. um, you guys aren't even using the same software, probably, right? No, we're not. <laughs> not at all. Total different set of software. <laughs> I'm a sound hack person, and with Adres Montes Lira. Uh, and I own, and, and I run all my programs on Mac, Mac OS nine. <laughs> <laughs> right, I have seen your uh, desktop. Yeah. yeah. Um, now and then, so Neil added acoustic instruments because he just said, "Okay, I didn't know that that was part of this thing." So he added a guitar on the track that was on the wire thing, panharmonican, mm -hmm. um, acoustic guitar, and, and the um, oh yeah that review you sent like the guy said it's obviously Horton out doing the acoustic and <laughs> and he had it all backwards you know, oh yeah yeah that, that review yeah, that one yeah it was like I was me doing the electronics and Neil doing the acoustic guitar <laughs> right right because a lot of like I, yeah you gave me a bunch of other recordings you've done a ton of recordings uh, over the years but uh, we should maybe back up you mentioned the appliances uh, we could go all the way back and when that started that was like what seventy eight, seventy nine, seventy nine to eighty two, mm -hmm. and um, you said that there's going to be a reissue of that stuff. Yeah, we're in the process. Um, uh, Superior Viaduct 
the label that just reissued oh, yeah, yeah. the uh, Avengers, Factrix, and uh, and my favorite. Uh, but I'm gonna blow oh, the name. He, uh, he did a No Mercy. No Mercy. My Is that favorite. Your favorite? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw them about six times during the during the day. Yeah. 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 They were awesome. awesome. Yeah, there's a couple of those tracks that I think they're just vocals and drones, maybe. Yeah, that's all they pretty much were live. Right. right. You know? Yeah. And then it's a little bit of keyboard and some effects. Uh, so are you remastering stuff or going back to source tapes or what's the deal with that reissue? Um, we're doing everything we can. The first release is actually going to be a demo tape that was never released. Okay. It's going to come out, I think, as a, a seven inch single, three songs. kind of uh, explain what that band was like. Well, you were playing this exact same thing in that band, right? I was playing the boot, the sex machine. These are homemade instruments, sort of punk versions of 
I was inspired by Harry Parch, but did not have his uh, craftsmanship, to put it bluntly. (laughs) And plus, it wouldn't have been appropriate to have that level of craftsmanship during the punk era. Right. And this this instrument is uh, it's boot shaped. It was found on Bird Street in San Francisco in exactly this shape. And I just took it home, put some tuning pegs on it, (laughs) some bridges, four strings. You play it with a slide like a dobro. Mm And I've tuned it in various manners over the year. Right now, it has it's labeled with ratios because it's a yeah. just intonation. Okay. But I was not playing in just intonation during the appliances. I was into noise and the right. New York bands, basically. And that's interesting because it seems like the the band itself, like, well, you had your singer who is kind of famous. Right, I don't know if she wants to be talked about, or is she yeah, down the, with the uh, reissues, or have you been? We have no idea. the um, The person, the rec, uh, Steve from Superior Viaduct, had emailed her, but we haven't heard back. Okay. Um, but it's Dominique De Prima or Dominique Baraka, depending on. I don't know what she's going by now. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, the only issue whether if whether it would be have a negative impact on her street cred. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has a radio show in LA that's you know you know the hip hop thing right. so if it you know being in a band with a bunch of white people might not be something that she'd want to have spread around right but how did you guys all come together back in 79 well dominique i knew cuz i studied with her mom i studied writing and poetry for okay. a number of years in fact i moved to california to study with diane oh well okay um just over the private thing or through a university or something? Private. Okay. She had she basically had classes that she put on herself. I met her, Diane, at Naropa University, and she was the best poetry teacher there. Mm-hmm. Just had a very, very good approach to working with people. Were you going to Naropa for school? I just went there for summer. Uh-huh. And um, you're from out east, though, you're saying? Yeah. Okay, where are you from? From, from south of Boston, mm-hmm. Quincy, Massachusetts. Okay. And I basically left there as soon as I could, threw a backpack on, and, mm-hmm. you know, I always felt like, well, I might not think Jack Kerouac is such a great writer anymore, but mm-hmm. he gave me the ticket out. Right, right. And it was like, oh, another option besides college. Mm-hmm. So you ended up in Colorado, and then you, you ended up out here, yeah. working with her. So, uh, at that time, what kind of music were you And playing? I also met Robin, the bass player from uh-huh. The Appliances, at Naropa. Okay. So... And she was at that point an avant-garde flute player, one of the best. Mm-hmm. But she gave she gave up the that whole thing to be in a punk band. <laughs> <laughs> but that was the era. I think yeah. that was the time. I mean, yeah, seventy nine. At first, she played drums, but that was ridiculous because she was only making use of a little bit of her mm-hmm. knowledge. And so then she switched to bass, and that was actually a more appropriate. Mm-hmm. She could use her melodic and harmonic knowledge as well as her rhythmic knowledge. Naropa, from what uh, my understanding is, it, it's sort of like, uh, it's like more like spiritually directed kind of school, or is it a little it's a, bit more? It's a, a Buddhist, it's a Buddhist, Buddhist uh, party school. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it was then. <laughs> Buddhist party school. Like, you know, except you'd be partying with yeah. Allen Ginsberg and William Burroughs and uh, nice. yeah. Anne Waldman and... Uh, those folks. So were you interested? And musicians, in... Don Cherry was there. Oh, wow. Okay. And uh, Dave Holland and Carl Berger. Teaching or just kind of hanging yeah. out? Yeah. So you had an interest in the Buddhism back then? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So just 
ever really since, early on. Ever since 10th grade, I read a book by Chogim Trungpa and said, oh, good, this is my teacher. I don't have to spend any more time on that. Mm-hmm. So um, as soon as I could leave home, I went to Naropa. Wow, okay. Because yeah. that seems like... Relate well. We, there's a lot to catch up on from that, but um. So you you started appliances in San Francisco. You guys played gigs around here. Did you ever do any touring? Did you ever go? To we LA? did one tour to L.A. We toured with Esmeralda from No Mercy, mm-hmm. and with Indoor Life. I don't know that. Any, I don't know that one. Uh, Indoor Life was uh, they were a synthesizer band. Um, and some people from the jazz scene, uh, J.A. Dean, who actually went on to play with John Hassel, and um, and who's the guy who does the conduction? Butch Morris. He's done a lot of stuff with Butch Morris. Mm-hmm. And he started off playing, he's a trombone player, but he played trombone through a lot, uh, electronics. But he started off in the Ray Charles band. What? Okay. Yeah, this wow. guy was you know, quite a player. Right, right. And this guy, Joe Sabella, who was a great drummer, who played a lot on the San Francisco free jazz scene, mm-hmm. like... Uh, the Blue Dolphin, the legendary Blue Dolphin, where all the San Francisco free jazz started. I didn't know about actually with the free jazz scene in the Bay Area. Oh yeah, much. Blue Dolphin was totally fucking hot. I saw John Zorn there. I saw the Pyramids. Pyramids were fucking awesome band. Um, they were actually from Ohio, but they Idris Ackermore had moved out here, and the whole band followed him. And they, you know, they were. This was like the early. So they did a full African thing. You know, costumes. Oh, like, and, like uh, yeah, with the dashikis and stuff. Yeah, and, you know, a little bit of art ensemble influence, but much more, um, you know, they were play, You know, they stayed in a groove a lot longer than, the, than you could rely on the art ensemble yeah. to stay in a groove. How did people take it when you were playing the boot in, a, in like, kind of a post-punky, new-wavy kind of band? Well, you know, we were... Well, it's interesting. I should say that uh, Steve is verified this that we were probably the first band to do rap in California really yeah in 79 Dominique uh in 80 because mm-hmm. she in 79 late 79 she left us and went to New York mm-hmm. hung out at the New Yorican cafe with Miguel Algarin um and came back you know she'd heard all the really early rap coming out of the Bronx mm-hmm. South Bronx and she came back and uh we immediately put it in our set. Uh, and then we, you know, punks didn't particularly like that, so we were dodging beer cans. And But it was, you know, Dominique was great. Like, somebody would come up on stage lurching, and she would just stand there, cock her hip and raise her eyebrow, and the person would just shrivel and melt. <laughs> yeah. And you guys were doing, like, the Mabuhai circuit and places like that. Yeah. Mabuhai on Broadway. Uh <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> the other places are fading. Yeah, no, no. In, a, in, a, in a thirty-year. F- oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to like yeah back up some reality to it. Okay, so then there was that project. That project ended, and then the next thing you did was uh, the the you the, the next thing was that ensemble, right? Actually, the next thing was I was a member of uh, the band Cuckoo Coo, uh, uh-huh. which was Michael Shannon's band, um, um, and they're very interesting band and I only did that for a short period because they had a lead singer who had similar issues to the appliances lead singer like about showing up on time and stuff and so I left that and I formed Plateau mm-hmm. and Plateau started off uh, exploring drone and 
drone and tuning systems and theater. And then we started getting more into uh, like bringing in ethnic music, sort of like a punk ethnic uh, mm-hmm. thing. In fact, I think I told you the funny story where we were sending out demo tapes at one point and we sent one to Ashkenaz and one to Gilman Street. <laughs> and Gilman, St- Gilman Street said... You're too ethnic, try Ashkenaz. And Ashkenaz said, You're too punk, try Gilman Street. <laughs> like and we're like, Well, this punk. about sums it up. <laughs> yeah. You didn't get to play either place? No.
a lot of house shows. I remember you showing me a video of some house shows. House shows. We played a big, the place, the farm. Right, the farm. We yeah. did a big show there. I can't remember if there was who the headliner is, but that was like a huge crowd and they totally went, went wild for us. Mm-hmm. And um, there were a lot of underground spaces like 10th Street. That was like a cooperative and they had the, they had these huge shows. Like there'd be like 500, 600 people there a show. Uh, they also recorded us. But they, you know, they had a one of those, a lot of equipment and half of it didn't work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you'd be recording and you'd have microphones all set up and you realize like four of the microphones weren't working. So you'd have a recording and you wouldn't have any of the acoustic instruments on it. Right, right. Yeah. Just like drums or something. Yeah. Um, maybe it's a good time to take a pause. Yeah. Let's do that. So that sound is from you recording your friend's house, uh, the chickens, after they laid an egg. Yeah, actually, it wasn't even me recording. It was She recorded it on her cell phone and then, uh, you know, emailed it to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a, an outrageous sound. And I've, you know, you've done things before, like I'm recording with me and Tom Carter... Uh, used Henry Kuntz, the free jazz player. Oh, yeah, yeah, Kuntz, yeah. <clears throat> along with some honking geese. So mm-hmm. you have the honking sax and the honking geese. and mm-hmm. I like doing that stuff. Not in the sort of new-agey way, like Paul Winter and the Wolves, but something that, you know, really sort of just, like, you can't figure it out. Right, right. Uh, have you heard that Thai Elephant Orchestra record? Yes, that's a, the, there's two. There's two, the, the one with just the elephants is fantastic. Then mm-hmm. there's another one that, that they added, like, New Age synthesizer tracks. Oh, I haven't heard that one. I've I haven't either, and I don't one. want to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, also my friend Mark was going to do a record with recording his dog playing piano. Apparently his dog's a pretty good uh, free pianist, <laughs> which I can totally see. Um, so, yeah, and field record. This is a good seg out of Plateau Ensemble, so we were talking about that. That was your project, kind of mid-'80s project. Yeah, that went from like 83, late 83 to 88. Mm-hmm. And um, you still play with some of the guys from that in yeah, different yeah, projects. Yeah, uh, 
I still play with Hal, the fiddle player, and banjo player. He's on the record, too. He's yeah, on the new he's record, on, yeah. He's on Trojan Dropper on mm-hmm. fiddle on one tune. Um, and he's the trumpet player that inspired me to take up the trumpet. Oh, yeah. Um, I didn't even know you played trumpet. Yeah. I thought you had one in the room, yeah. Yeah. And Mike Shannon, who I play with in Broken Mask, who now lives in Seattle and plays with people like the uh, Climax Golden Twins. Oh, okay. and, um bunch of different folks. Um, did those people, did people outside the Barrier know about Plateau at all? Or did that get out there much? It didn't. We played lots of gigs, um, and we never really came up with a great uh, recording. Um, which was unfortunate, because we had a pretty unique sound. Because mm-hmm. um, we basically did everything from free on improv to ethnic dance pieces to drones to total noise to mm-hmm. punk stuff so um, we covered like a lot of ground and you never knew what you were going to get when we played so then did you have like a period where you weren't really playing at all or you were just not playing I had a period where I wasn't playing out and I'm actually still in that period right <laughs> right do you never wait have you not done a live show since since Plateau's last show and why not Okay. Although I played at my one of my birthday parties, I played here with Tom and, uh, mm-hmm. and Hal. We did a actually a we actually even did a tune from one of the records. We did a tune from uh, a record that Digitalis put out, Steel Jaguar. Okay. Um, uh, so just only oh you all only play your house pretty much. I only play my house. Yeah. <laughs> um, and part what are what are the reasons for that? I think you've told me, but just you know, people might be curious. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, uh, I guess one of the, I really liked playing like live shows, but at a certain point, just noticing uh, the people who, as they got more successful, that they got less friendly. Um, like if you were playing with a band that was more successful, sometimes you know they wouldn't even be civil. Um, that I just decided, and you know, all reading all the biographies of all the jazz players and people who toured, that this isn't a good thing. It's the, touring, the touring and uh, going around. People like want to do it, and then they do it, and then they die. Uh, that was one reason. Then, uh-huh. then from a totally different take, the band I was in got to a point where um, there were a lot of like you know relationship things, and I was the leader, and it got to be like you know the French horn po- player calling me up and saying, "Can you tell the fiddle player this?" Uh-huh. And I was like, "No, you tell them." <laughs> uh, and I just got fed up with it. I didn't want to be a babysitter. So, and so I actually bought a sampler and figured that it would be a lot less hassle. Right. Because, <laughs> you know, I was a 12-piece band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And nobody's getting paid much <laughs> right. or anything, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I, you know, kept it together for uh, five, five years. years. Yeah. That's pretty good. <laughs> um, and by the time... I was just done with it. Right. And I still played with a lot of those people and other people, but I would set up scenarios in the sampler for them to play with. Mm-hmm. Um, and from there, I, you know, I was, the sampler gave me a way of exploring different rhythmic things. I got into, like, 
Like the first thing I did with the sampler was like erase all the discs that they gave you. <laughs> all the presets. Uh, yeah. All the presets. Yeah. I erased every single one because I figured that it, you know, in order to have a unique sound, you had to use. I mean, the whole point of it is so that you could have a unique sound by sampling different things. Uh huh. Um, and this is the eighty-eight, eighty-nine. Yeah. What? So, what kind of sampler was it? I still have it. It's a Casio FZ One. Oh, like the uh, little ones? No, you... no, 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 no. It's their their first full blown sixteen bit uh, sampler. Okay. Uh, I never With got pads. into the little ones. Yeah. But um, uh-huh. it's a it's a it's a nice machine. It doesn't considering I'm into tuning systems, you can't tune it into just different mm-hmm. tuning systems, and they nowadays samplers you can pretty easily. Um, but but the limitations of any instrument. If you stick with it, it creates your sound. Right, yeah. Um, I, I think that's true. And I'm still using it and uh, a lot. I'm, I didn't use that for a while. Now I'm using it a lot because I'm doing all these uh, rhythm, rhythmic studies like that are based on African music, Central African music, and mm-hmm. Colin Nancaro. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, 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 like, Caro, yeah. I'm, like I'm really into working with 12 against 11. Oh wow! Rhythms uh, over the I've been for the last year just exploring it. Like and I this just, and this machine, uh, it, it still has enough mem- it has enough memory to do that kind of stuff. Oh sure, yeah. But you know it has a lot of memory, um, and the sequencer's doing most of the, the mm-hmm. rhythmic stuff. And the the sequencer's on a Mac, like another even more ancient. I think I'm on an eight point something operating system on that one. Oh yeah, for the Mac. Yeah. yeah.
Con, I'm going to do the remixing of that finds the stuff from the 4-track, from the half-inch 4-track. Because it was originally just onto a cassette, right, the demo cassette. The, the demo, and so he's, like, transferred the the 4-track onto digital and then has it in this rather complex program and, you know, then can tweak the, you know, the EQ and the effects and we... But it's weird, uh... I mean, it's sort of odd because, you know, back in the day, it was just analog, and we pretty much did nothing to it. And now you have these, somebody using this really complicated stuff trying to recapture that. And it's like, <laughs> we did that because that's all we could do. <laughs> right. You had to play it right the first time, right? Yeah. So. That's interesting. So, um, yeah, so the boot has been the thing that you've done the whole time. What other instruments have you been building yourself over there? Well, there's the sex machine, which is a chair frame with springs, strings, and bits of metal. Mm -hmm. And you put a contact mic on it, so the whole chair frame itself is a percussion instrument. Um, there's another one called the electric thumb, which is uh, sort of like a thumb piano, but it has parts of a toy piano as well on it. Uh, another con Oh, the one that I've used a lot, and used a lot over the last five years, five years is uh, the electric barometer which is basically a junky barometer insides that have you know, springs and weird things and I just put a contact mic on it stick some um, some springs from ballpoint pens on it okay. uh, and play that sometimes with q-tips oh really? just mallets. Of, okay it's mallets oh whoa not like bowed or anything like that sometimes yeah, I bowed yeah. yeah so that's all you've so you weren't playing live anymore, but this whole time from eighty eight, eighty nine on, you've been making recordings. Oh yeah, I have one of the biggest archives of people think I went nuts releasing material back in two thousand and five and seven. I uh -huh. only it was just a few drops from the bucket. And I'm and I'm pretty um much a stickler in terms of quality for what I let out. Mm -hmm. So what led to you having this uh, massive amount of releases happening around 2005. How did that all come together? Wow, we could go at that from a bunch of bizarre angles. Uh -huh. Let's take a really bizarre one. Sure. Um, we had a feng shui person come to our house. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, oh, they looked at my music room and they said, oh, your music can't get out of this room. <laughs> they said, you need to put a mirror up on this big door and so we bought this plastic mirror at Tap Plastics and put it up on the door and all of a sudden facing in or facing out of the door in the mirror well, well I, I'll show you yeah, later but yeah. you know you describe won't be able to it tell. describing it it's basic it's basically on the far wall oh, uh, okay. so at like the deepest part of the room and it reflects energy so it comes mm. back and goes out the door right and from the moment we put up that mirror we started having hundreds of releases <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, like, because I, I grew up with, like, you put a mirror on the front on the outside of the door. Uh, I don't know why. It's a, a feng shui. Like, you do Chinese that occasionally, thing, you know? depending on the situation. I think it was maybe because where our house was, because it was the end of a court. So it was kind of the dead end of the court, and so we had to put a mirror up mm -hmm. for some reason to keep the 
keep the energy flowing. Yeah, we have out. one of those in the kitchen window facing out. Mm-hmm. And then you may notice that we have a light that's outside in the front yard that shines on this corner of the house. Because this corner of the house is the money corner. Oh. And it's also the helpful pe- people corner. Is that why you wanted me to move my chair over? Because it was blocking your view of the corner? No. Okay. It <laughs> was simply because I'm laying here, and if I'm turning my head upwards, then oh, it will screw up my neck. Right. Well, that's another thing that people might not know. You have a, a sort of a condition where you can't really sit. Yeah, I have um, damage to my central nervous system, and um, which means, uh, and to the lung and ribs, and it's in the process of healing, but... I can't sit for longer than 20 minutes, and uh, so that mean, has meant creating non-unorthodox situations, like where I'm laying down, and it's, it's hard if I just go into someone else's space, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because if you're not in a mood to like really go after what you need, you can screw yourself up. Right, so you'd have to just be standing the whole time, or leaning right. against a wall or something. Yeah, so it's like you can stand and you can lie down, but sitting is somehow the worst. Right, and no matter what I do, I should change a lot. Mm-hmm. You need to like standing up. still in one place, like like say to go to a concert. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all oh, right. Yeah. Walking, yeah, but mm-hmm. yeah. just like keeping the motion going. Yeah, yeah. and uh, so yeah, I thought that might but it's be... like the opposite of what people think of as a disability. Mm-hmm. So that's very interesting because how is it the opposite of a disability? Usually, you know, say, oh, you can't move. Oh, you're right. You're in a wheelchair. You have to move. You have to be immobile, right? So it's like, right. uh, it's, you know, it's really interesting. Like when you try to, like if, I, like if I'm going to go to a concert, I have to call them up and say, well, is there an area where I can lie down? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it ranges. Like Mills College was like fantastic. Right. It's yeah. like whatever you need to do, you can lay in, just tell us that that's why, you know, you can lay in the aisle, no problem. Mm-hmm. They're like like totally cool, mm-hmm. you know, and even cool like Willie Winant goes by me to go up on stage and go, go hey, you comfortable? <laughs> Is your back okay? <laughs> I'm just like, whoa. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. nice. Yeah. So when you uh, record, are you usually standing? Yeah. Yeah, so that's... You, otherwise, you'd be stopping all your recordings at 20 minutes. And I... Um, minutes in. You know, I, have, I put out a table, and sometimes like, I'll put up a couple crates and then put the boot up on top of that so mm-hmm. it's high up, so I'm playing it. I'm not bending at mm-hmm. weird angles. And mm-hmm. uh, and this has been a condition you had since you were pretty young, right? So even when you were in like the appliances and stuff, was this... No, it wasn't you know. bad then. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, it's yes, it is a condition I've had, but it, it like it hit a in two thousand and seven. It um, mm-hmm. it uh, basically put me down for a, a few years. Well, yeah, right. So, I think I remember hearing that because you had put out all those releases, and then people were kind of like wondering how you were doing, or like when I told people I was doing a record with you, people were like, "Oh, is he okay?" Because I think people had heard that you were had taken a bad turn in health mm-hmm. and didn't know, I guess maybe didn't know what that meant or weren't sure if that was like putting you out of the game completely or what was going yeah, on. I'm coming out. I'm coming back out. <laughs> and uh, because, and yeah, working with those limitations. Yeah. And those guys that you were recording, when did you start doing this stuff with like Tom Carter and like, was this all because of the internet group with the, the, no, Tom, the I met, group? no Tom, I met, 
at um, a Jack Rose show at the Jeweled Antler House in North Berkeley. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't go to that. I've never been to any of those shows at that house. I've heard yeah, they're, about that They're spot. over. That was my favorite yeah. uh, performance space. I wish I'd gone. It was as good as the Deaf Club from the punk years. Oh, me. whoa. You guys played the Deaf Club? No, didn't play the Deaf Club. Oh, you Deaf didn't play club. the Deaf Club. But you'd go to those shows. I'd go to those shows. Yeah, those sound ridiculous, yeah. Um... Yeah, it's like if the band sucked, you you know you just sit at the bar, and uh, I I don't sign unfortunately, mm-hmm. but uh, they had they had pad of, pads of paper and pencils, and <laughs> That's how you I ordered. remember one night the Offs were playing, and I was never a big Offs fan, um, and but I had nothing else to do, so I was there, and I, I met this middle-aged woman who was in town. She was deaf, mm-hmm. with her bowling team, and the whole bowling team came out to the deaf club. Uh, from the you know Midwest Milwaukee or something. Were they all deaf? Yeah. Oh, the whole team was deaf. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and they loved it. Uh, they would all take off their shoes because they could feel they oh, yeah, could the hear feet. the band yeah, through yeah. their feet. Right. Right. Um, and the you know punk music that was no problem. It was like really loud. Yeah. Yeah. And they also, you know, they lived in an alternative culture. Right. So yeah. that you know there was this easy you know even these like. Deaf people from the Midwest, you know, the most conservative part of the country, just were like totally at home with all these, you know, uh, leather-clad and mohawked uh, punks of, yeah. of, you know, say 1980, yeah, probably 80. You never did the the mohawk thing, right? Did you always no. kind of keep the keep the fairly conservative hair? I, I guess I had very <laughs> short hair and. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I never. I actually, Mohawks in that time period, mm-hmm. there were actually very few people with them, mm-hmm. and they were usually more suburban people. Right, like they just saw it somewhere and they just yeah. thought that that was. And they were sort of like know. into violence, and yeah, you know, there were two. Like there were these different. It wasn't until like '83 where that, where the skinhead thing sort of started winning out. Mm-hmm. But up until then, it was like you know most of the punks were artists. You know, extremely political in a good sense. Right. Um, and, you know, it's sort of like... And pogoing was a co-ed affair. And people would take care of each other in the pogo. And um, and then when it, you know, it got more moving in the direction of mosh pits, it became more of a male activity. Right. I've heard this theory, too, yeah, because around... It sort of... I guess you could pin it on Black Flag or Hardcore or something. It just became it was just the next wave of, yeah. of, of of kids. And were there a lot of skinhead, like racist skinheads, in the San Francisco scene back then? There were some because you know Jello had his racist kid, you know, racist oh, punk yeah. fuck off song. Right, that lasted about forty punks. seconds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and especially the more hardcore bands would attract those people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you had some people who just adopted, you know, the style without, you know, because the first, you know, from 77 to, in the San Francisco was highly political, high, highly creative artists. And, A lot of Art Institute people. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. Penelope Houston was the Art Institute. I didn't know she was Art Pink Section and um, all those people. Well, there's a lot of shit. Of, oh, it's an art band from the Art Institute. And, mm-hmm. you know, here, here. So it's interesting. It's like, oh, Penelope was in one of the bands that no one ever accused of being an art band. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, 
And was your interest in Buddhism pretty rare back then for the punk scene? You could... I was not... I was sort of away from the Buddhism during the punk scene. Okay. How the punk you, scene was yeah. sort of like intensive therapy. It was better than therapy. Uh-huh. Where else could you go and just like, you know, throw your body like violently into other people but in a friendly manner? Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, yell and scream and... Um, much better than therapy. So it was the move from Naropa into San Francisco, and well, how did it go with working on the poetry with Diane De Prima into the punk scene? How did that transition happen? <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah. Um, well, start. Uh, Rob, Robin moved to to from San Diego to here. We hooked up. We started doing like noise groups, like we were doing like futurist influenced noise. Okay. Uh, I'm like this is before there was a noise scene, but so again, we're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. We had some house shows. One of them was really hilarious because we invited all our friends and we were playing this like screeching feedback, but we'd set up the amplifiers in front of the door so no one could get out. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty good. I mean, it was a great show. I have I actually had a tape of it that it broke, but the tape was great. But I don't think that anybody there was ready for it <laughs> right yeah um except for the musicians there were like four of us mm-hmm. um like electronics like feedback stuff really like we came up with like we were influenced by russelo and like uh the stockhausen seven days stuff where and we basically we had a couple fender amps and microphones and we would get feedback that way mm-hmm. and we, and then Robin had her flute, which she put a microphone inside of, and then put that through some pedals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we kept the pedals to a minimum, because it really did not sound like, uh, you know, like effects pedals music. Mm-hmm. It sounded like noise. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. we would actually, like, we would scrape things. You know, we would have, like, these boards and wires and scrape them, and they were through contact mics, and then it was just... Do you have recordings of that? Oh, you said you had the tape that broke. That particular tape broke, and some of that actually stuff got released on the... um, On Davenport put out a... um, you know, the that, band that, Davenport? Yeah, yeah, that guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He had a, his label. They put out this glorious, like, archive package with, like, a color, like oh. a like 25-page, like, color uh, booklet of, like, all archive pieces that I sent him. Oh, yeah. What was what the name of that project? That Ism. Ism? Okay. Whoa. So, did that... was the, What was going on with the poetry, though? Did you, like, kind of ditch it, or...? I... I well, first of all, the poetry scene... Mm-hmm. I have never been so disgusted by any group of people that I were the poets. They were like... Really? In 78? Yeah. They were just like totally insular. Uh, They would show up at each other's readings but not listen to each other. They only were into their poetry. It was like this totally egocentrical, non-communal bullshit. Mm -hmm. So the, the scene just sucked. Even with Diane involved as kind of a mentor, did that? Oh, that's a, that wasn't part of the scene. That was yeah. just like off to the side. Mm-hmm. Just people. But working were... with Diane was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she, you know, she introduced us to so many things. Like, uh, like actually, my wife started something with Diane. I like I dropped out to be a punk. 
Mm-hmm. But they started a thing called San Francisco Institute of Magic and Healing Arts. Wow. And a lot of what they would do would be, like, reground people who had gotten into the weird, like, OTO shit. You know, the OTO? Crowley. Oh, the Crowley. Like, you know, okay. Thro- you know, the stuff that Robin Gristle was into. Uh-huh. People would go into that shit, and they'd come back, like, whacked out. Like, oh, okay. totally, like, like, almost destroyed and... So and so they did, you know. <laughs> like there was enough of those people that you could have this. Well, there was that, <laughs> and then you'd have more new age people, right? And, yeah. Um, but you know, Diane's whole approach to every, anything she does is really grounded. Mm-hmm. Um, so just learning like visualization techniques and all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, collage. I got into collage from her. And, oh uh, yeah. You have a lot of, like, a lot of your cover art is, yeah. like, you're just making collages. Yeah, I do as much visual art as I do music. Yeah, and I like that, like, actually the cover of that record is, like, a collage, but then there's the photography aspect of it, because then you get this weird reflection of you shooting it, and it's, I like that it's a record on a record also. Uh, so I'm just tooting my own horn about, like, <laughs> this awesome record that we just did. But um, that's interesting, so you kind of did have to, like, treat the oh, punk oh. scene as a separate thing from this poetry and spiritual thing. Well, yeah, I did. Um, the we did, a, we did a book, a poetry book, mm-hmm. and we were doing readings. We did a reading at Intersection and then one at Bound Together. The night we did the Bound Together reading was the night of the White Night Riots. What is that? What's that? Dan White when he was acquitted. Oh, when he was acquitted oh. with the Twinkie defense. Oh, right. Which people still don't believe. I mean, you tell people who weren't there that yeah, he said he ate Twinkies and he got off from murdering two, and they don't like believe you. I've, I've talked yeah. to people and they don't believe you. Yeah, like you're making this up, and it's yeah. like no, Google it. <laughs> that guy ended up like killing himself uh, in jail, right? Or after uh, getting out? No, no, he got out. He yeah. got off with almost nothing. He killed himself a few years later. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, um, wow, so that was the same night And there was a, the there was a riot that night uh-huh. And then that was the last poetry reading we did And pretty soon we were like auditioning people for the appliances after that So it was like you and Robin were kind of a crew That were yeah. working on the poetry Who else was kind of a contemporary we, oh, And part of the poetry thing, there was a transition mm-hmm. We did some pieces, I wrote these pieces that were combined poetry And then her flute and then electronics Mm-hmm Oh, and even in Europa, I would do like organized group poems where, like, pe- like almost like uh, like, you know, like people would have like two words that they had to say, and they have to say them in sequence, and you get oh, into rhythms and stuff. That's exactly like an improv game yeah. that people do. Uh, yeah, which is like to kind of form a group mind is this game called Zip Zap Zop, which zip, is Zap Zop Zip Zap Zop. So it'd be like zip, and then you go zap, zap. and then you go zop, and then you go zip, zap, zap, zap. zip, zip, zip. Yeah. Except you have to do it in order. Yeah, you have to keep the order going. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. That is like a way to kind of form like a group mind. And it's also a way of taking a poem mm-hmm. and making it more tangible and presenting it. Because I would take a written poem and you know have it parts of it be like a like repeated chant and. Um, I mean, I remember one of them was Billy and Diane were fucking on the roof, fucking on the roof, and they had like like, like five voices doing. It. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds awesome. Yeah, it sounds like uh, a round, like row your boat, yeah. but filthy. Yeah. So, were the Naropa people into what that what you were doing there, or did you feel like there was some resistance there at all? No, they seemed like real loose about everything. 
No, in fact, you know, I'd say one of the inspirations for that was like Ann Waldman would like read her poems in a really energetic way, but it would get and so would John Giorno. Oh yeah, I know who John Giorno. But they would yeah. get repetitive, and I was trying to think. Well, if you applied some simple things from like rock music, it wouldn't get repetitive. Like you know, let's like how about a chorus? <laughs> like, and and why not? You know, okay, let's take a little bit of Steve Reich. How about repeat things, mm-hmm. but not to the degree that John Giorno, like he repeat things. Do you want to shoot him? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that irritating, wonderful voice of his. But you know, not, you know, after twenty minutes of him screaming, I, w- I won't even try to remember what he was, but there would be these lines that he would just repeat, but to use repetition, but not that much. (laughs) (laughs) Were you interested in the sound poetry? There's like, I know that's a kind of a category, like sound poetry. Uh, I was into some of that, like Kurt Schwitter's, like the real old stuff, and Mm -hmm. I was really anti the language poets. So the people that might come up with of, and, at, be, the, the, Oh, okay. But they would read it like, like that, you mm-hmm. know, just mm-hmm. like, and of the, you know, it's like, okay, if they were going like, and of the ba ba ba, you know, mm-hmm. you I'd wanted there to it. be something rhythmic. I wanted the there to be something life, so yeah, have have life, and mm-hmm. um, and not these intellectual theories about the sound of the syllables and blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. And but you could get that really visceral thing in the punk scene, yeah. Okay, then how did this, uh, what you do for a living now is pretty interesting, I think, because you're kind of, you're doing anti-racist training, but you're, are you sort of, it ties into the Buddhist stuff somehow? Yeah, it uh, ties in in the sense of that, um, historically, well, I, first of all, I work, uh, I work mostly with white people, mm-hmm. uh, um, our organization is expanding. We have other teachers who are going to be working with people of color, and we also have a, a, a Chinese group that's been working for the last... I've been actually working with them, with my mentor, so that they could come up with a model of what they wanted to do for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but in working with white people, it, the, there's a history of like with unlearning racism work. What tends to happen is people start looking at how they've been conditioned, and then they hit uh, guilt. You know, they, they see something, and then that, but uh, they get stuck in this overwhelming feeling of guilt and shame. And the Buddhist element we bring in is that people are basically good. The fact that you have conditioning uh, is, it's like you have conditioning, it's like you breathe in smog. You don't have a choice about that. But you do have a choice now about whether you're going to have that limit your behavior, your actions. Um, So, we start from the premise that all people are basically good and that you have that basic goodness and the work has to be done from that place. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you came to working on this through uh, this mentor or like the person who's a a teacher for you? mm Mm-hmm. Uh, her name's Rita Shimon. I met her, interestingly enough, my health issues led me to this, mm-hmm. which is sort of bizarre, because how could your health issues lead you to doing anti-racism work? Yeah. Uh, well, we are right by the Richmond refinery. I, was, like, when I yeah. emailed you the other day when that crazy explosion happened, and that is actually a major 
one aspect of it is like we're like dealing with like environmental racism too. Right? Totally envir- ecological, environmental racism mm-hmm. that, and, and even like on somebody today told me on SF Gate, there were like they belonged to SF Gate, and that a lot of people were just saying, you know, here upon hearing that 4,000 people went to the hospital, saying mostly these people just want to like make money off the corporation. It's like, and... Yeah, you've lived here long enough. There's been multiple times that Chevron Refinery has, like, pooped out into the sky. and Yeah, well, a major fire like this, and it was like... And they're still... After the last one in 1999, they promised the community that they would, you know, stop processing dirty crude. Mm-hmm. But what went up was dirty crude. They have so it's since ninety nine. They have not changed. Yeah. They have not done anything to change. Um, yeah. So, but anyway, yeah, but, I got highly charged around that issue. Yeah. So, but you you met this woman with your yeah. health issues. I went to. Um, I discovered this work called process work that works with a lot of different things. And one of the things that they work with is like chronic illnesses, because I my illness stuff all stems from an accident when I was eleven. I made chlorine gas, as so I was a successful chemist. I successfully made chlorine gas, but it's a poisonous gas that was used in World War One, and I gassed myself, and I almost I came within ten seconds of dying, and uh, from exposure, it's sort of like suffocation, but you're um, I was like in convulsions for nine hours and vomiting for nine hours. If you can imagine having dry heaves for nine hours. Um, and that caused damage to my lungs. And they also didn't treat it correctly. Um, they didn't even look it up. So it's so one of those things. If I'd been an adult, I could have sued them. But uh, yeah, my parents were in awe of doctors. Even if... They didn't know. question it, yeah. So anyway, so that's, so, and in the um, early 90s, I started having just a lot of, uh, like, really bad health stuff, like, with my lungs and uh, just my overall energy, and um, and I had a, a intestinal parasite uh, that took forever to get rid of. Um I started working with this process work people, and they basically, their whole thing is like about finding meaning in whatever's happening. And they look like everything is like a dream. Mm-hmm. Is it rooted in, a, is this connected to Buddhism specifically? Or no, is this it has nothing to do separate, with Separate, totally separate. Uh-huh. It's this guy, Arnold Mendel, he was a Jungian, mm-hmm. but then he developed all these other approaches of working with the body and stuff. And then also doing something he calls world work. And at first, I just connected with them around the body issue. I wasn't physically up to doing anything else. But I got, I decided I wanted to be a process worker because it was pretty amazing because you could, you learn techniques that you could, by interacting with the uh, people on the levels that they aren't aware of, like, um, you know, it's like you have processes that are closest to your awareness and ones that are farther away. An example would be, this is going to be a super exaggerated example, Okay, somebody's talking, and, you know, we've all met people like this, and they say, wow, man, I'm really into peace. Just 
peace, you know? Right. That's all I want. You know, and it's like, there's this uh-huh. total violence in their gestures, <laughs> and you're going, like, okay, man. <laughs> right, so body language. Yeah, there's like, the contradiction mm-hmm. basically points to the fact that pe- we have different parts, mm-hmm. and process work works with um, that people... Well, in terms of body illness, that frequently, if you if you're not negotiating well with those parts, then you know, you're trying to be who you think you should be or whatever. Then mm-hmm. um, a lot of the discomfort of those other parts show up in body symptoms, because you role play a lot, mm-hmm. and and it's basically learning to read the signals. And they use a video for training you. Hmm. So, and fact at this time is and you know, it's 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 a form of therapy the the individual work mm-hmm. but it was amazing because i've met people who were studying to be traditional therapists mm-hmm. like, and like they basically read books in a school and then they get thrown in a clinic and uh-huh. i'm going i can't believe that because you know here we are you know we work with each other with your peers and it's video and then you go over the video and you can see oh yeah that's where you missed the signal because it basically teaches you to pay attention to nonverbal signals. Okay. Um, and the and to not pay that much attention to somebody's storyline to find out. You have to pay enough attention so you you know know what that is. But then to find out with the parts that don't fit into their story. Right. When there's an internal contradiction between. Right. This like the person and... slapping the legs. Like mm-hmm. you might go like a process worker might say just they might they wouldn't comment on it that, other than saying oh could you could you do that some more. Mm-hmm. And they'd say, "Do what? Oh, the you know this. Mm-hmm. No, was I doing that? Just try it. You know, if mm-hmm. you can get them to try it, then they can investigate that part. They'll be conscious of it. Yeah. yeah. Now this stuff. Now, how did that apply to your illness? Like the body work stuff. How did that? Is that part of that? Yeah. So I got into to working on that aspect of like you know what did it mean that I had this like intense accident and almost died, mm-hmm. and that work got you know helped actually mm-hmm. and it's certainly the other thing if you're just dealing with symptoms and going oh woe is me why me it's much better to, to have a meaning mm-hmm. to have some sort of thing what is it you think the picture should be dressed as a housewife in an apron a, a gingham apron pink and white check 